0: Our second reading for the day is found in the New Testament book of James. We're in chapter five, I'll begin reading at verse 13. As I read through this passage, notice that seven times in this passage, James references prayer. Beginning at verse 13, James says, are there any among you suffering they should pray? Are any cheerful? They should sing songs of praise. Are any among you sick? They should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise them up. And anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed the prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective Elijah was a human being like us and he prayed fervently that it might not rain and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth yielded its harvest. This is the word of God. Church, would you pray with me? (coughs) Great God, we are so grateful that you have called us to this place and called us to yourself today we pray that we'll all have ears to hear what you're saying to us and then we also will have the grace and the courage to adjust our lives accordingly God I I want to live and preach in such a way that I desire nothing in life but to follow your will. Nothing else, nothing less, nothing besides. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. I have a love hate relationship with social media, I have a conflicted relationship with social media, particularly Facebook. Uh, I, I run across things on Facebook that I, I feel like I need to know. And sometimes I run across things on Facebook that I wish I didn't know. But I have this ambiguous relationship with Facebook. I was primed to preach this morning early as I was looking on Facebook to so see if there's anything I needed to know about you folks before I came here today. And I saw a post that was shared by two of the clergy that are among my colleagues, certainly not at this church, but in their post, they, they're sharing an article where they have 10 paragraphs, 10 now mind you, 10 paragraphs as to why anyone should join the church. There was some in the 10 paragraphs that, Didn't quite fancy my spirit, but not bad. 10 of the reasons to join the church. But I went back and I even reread it because I couldn't quite believe what I was seeing. I went back and reread this article, 10 paragraphs as to why anyone should join the church. And I thought I noticed the first time, noticed it the first time, but I certainly confirmed it when I went back and read again, here were 10 paragraphs as to why people should join the church and not one. A mindful, not one mention of Jesus Christ in those 10 paragraphs. You know, we like to tell people in our community, and I hope that we do and do it well and live well, to when we tell people that we are a Christ-centered congregation, uh, they see that as who we are. And all that we do reflects our conviction to be a Christ-centered congregation. But even as I say that we are a Christ-centered congregation, there really is none other. Now, there may be groups of people who get together and they do wonderful social work, and I love social workers. They get together and for the purposes of social work, and they may sing a few cool religious songs when they gather. There are some people who simply gather for the sake of, social interaction and they really look more like a social club and 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 they may even sprinkle a little bit of references to Jesus when they gather but they may be no more than a social club for the purposing of networking there is really none other than a church that is Christ-centered the church is the church of Jesus Christ I really don't believe that you can talk about the church or describe the church or invite others to be part of it without talking about Jesus Christ, but it happens far too often in our culture today. The church is of Jesus Christ, it is the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ founded the church. We are the body of Christ, the physical presence of Jesus in the world. I'm not creative enough to do church with only a little bit of Jesus sprinkled in. I'm getting ready, Tammy and I are getting ready to leave for a couple of weeks to go to Germany, and while we'll be, with several of you, while we'll be enjoying a river cruise up the Rhine River, our, our purpose for going is to learn Reformation history. We'll actually come back home on Reformation Sunday. We're learning about Reformation history by looking specifically at Martin Luther. We'll be enjoying the sights along the Rhine River, but we will be leaving the Rhine River to go to places that were important in the life of Martin Luther. Mansfeld, where he was born. Eisleben, where he grew up. Wittenberg, where he went to teach. Wittenberg, where he nailed those 95 theses to the church door, just asking for a debate. But what he said in those 95 Theses rocked the Christian world of his day. He was called to give an account of himself before the Roman Emperor, Holy Roman Emperor, and before some of the highest representatives of the church. He went to Worms to stand before all the powers of that age in Europe and Germany, and he was asked to recant some of his ideas. And what created his ideas was he had spent about 10 years teaching Scripture there at the University of Wittenberg. And um, he, he began to realize that what he was teaching, what he was finding in the book, it didn't seem that the church of his day had much of a connection. So he seemed to be attacking the church. That was not his intent. He seemed to be attacking the established church. They called him to Worms to stand before all the powers that prevailed there in Germany at that time and he was asked to recant and there in Worms is when he made that famous statement my my mind is captive to the word of God I can do no other help me Lord here I stand Martin Luther certainly reminded the church of his day there is no such thing as a church that is not Christ-centered. There are lots of groups that do great things in the world, but that doesn't necessarily mean, even if they sing religious music and throw Jesus in occasionally, that they're a church. Martin Luther reminded the world of his day that, and you're seated here today because of that. We are a Christ-centered church. We endeavor to be a Christ-centered church here and the Church of Jesus Christ is one, the Church of Jesus Christ is holy Catholic, that just simply means that everybody that belongs to Jesus belongs, it belongs to everybody that belongs to Jesus. We are one, we are universal. As long as we are centered on Christ, then it doesn't really matter uh, the particular expression of our denomination or our tradition, as long as we're centered on Christ. Here at Wesley Memorial Church, we have four prevailing, distinctive emphases or core values that we seek to use to guide our life together, both in ministry, in mission, and in worship. You heard those referenced a few moments ago by Susan, and you see them listed on banners out in this circle in front of the church. Those prevailing core values and perspectives are a commitment to worship, a commitment to small group or gatherings, a commitment to hands-on mission where we actually get involved being the body of Christ, and a commitment to prayer. I'm talking about prayer today. I'm finishing up our sermon series on finding peace by indirectly talking about how we find peace through the power of prayer, but I'm also starting a new sermon series that will carry us through our Connections campaign, and we'll be looking Uh, for the next four weeks at those particular five weeks actually those particular vows that we make as United Methodist you remember when you join a United Methodist congregation we take certain vows and we vow to support the congregation the local congregation through our prayers our presence our gifts, our service, and a few years back we realized what was missing and we added our witness to the world around us. Our four prevailing spiritual practices that guide us here at Weston Memorial, those five vows that guide us as Methodists, all are there for the purpose of helping us be Christ-centered. If not, we can be distracted and we can we can set out in so many different directions. When I was this superintendent, I used to tell churches because I could tell them this and then get in the car and go home to Tammy, I didn't have to stay there. But when I was this superintendent, I used to tell churches, if anything that you're doing doesn't have some reference to John 3, 16, please, literally for God's sake, consider stopping it. Or either take what you're doing and tweak it a little bit and make sure that it has something to do with John 3:16. There is no church other than a Christ-centered church. So our practices, our vows are there to help us stay Christ-centered because the winds of this world and the distractions of this world will pull us in other directions. The devil will let you go to church but the devil will try hard to prevent the church that you're attending be Christ-centered. We are the church of Jesus Christ, the church that was founded by Jesus Christ, the church that is the body of Christ, the church that is the bride of Christ in the world. So our text this morning is about prayer from the book of James. I hope that you know and love the book of James. When I was a new Christian years ago, uh, one of the first things I remember doing as a new Christian as I listened to um, a sermon series, a teaching series, uh, by the famous preacher uh, Chuck Swindoll. And at that point, when I was new in the faith, he was teaching about the book of James. And uh, because it was so informative so early in my Christian walk, I've loved, loved it ever since. Uh, we should pay attention to it because it's in the Bible. We should pay attention to it um, because it is one of the best places in the New Testament to look at and to receive what G.K. Chesterton called old-fashioned Christian common sense. It's a book about practical Christian living. And by the way, I hope you know the James that most all of us believe is almost consensus in the church. This particular James, and there are several in the New Testament, this particular James is, is the James that was head of the earliest Christian community centered there in Jerusalem which is the James that was the half-brother of Jesus. Now, of course, he's half-brother because he shared a mother but didn't share a father with Jesus. But he's the half-brother of Jesus. That's why he became a leader in the church in Jerusalem, even though he didn't believe in his brother until after the resurrection of his brother, half-brother. But we need to listen to this James as this James teaches us practical Christian living. And here in this text before us, which may, in a sense, be the climax of the book of James, is about prayer. There are seven references to prayer in this text. If you want, what what he says to begin with is this: If you want things to change, you need to start praying. Most of us know that, but don't miss what he's saying here in this text. If you want things to change, you need to start praying, and you need to invite others. To pray with you now i know some people because they want to protect their privacy and all of us value our privacy there are days i want to be left alone but sometimes some people who want to protect their privacy will not invite others to be praying with them over situations in their life they they they're more respectful of their privacy than they believe in the power of prayer if I have something going on in my life, I'm going to get people praying. I'll be praying, I'm going to get people praying. And by the way, your staff here really depends upon your daily prayers for us. Like the Apostle Paul who's always asking churches to pray for him, we, we ask you the same thing, pray for us. But if something's going wrong in your life, you need to be praying, and you need to be inviting others to pray. Look at the text, beginning verse 13 of the fifth chapter of James, the last chapter of James. The author says, are any among you suffering? That's almost a rhetorical question. Certainly there are. Are any among you suffering? They should pray. Are any cheerful? They should sing songs of praise. And for James, in the day of James, That means singing the psalms that we find in the Hebrew Bible. Of course, the earliest Christians, the only Bible they had was what we call Old Testament. They preached from the Old Testament to declare Christ. They sang the psalms from the Old Testament to sing songs of praise. Verse 14, are any among you sick? They should call for the elders of the church and have them pray. You need to be praying. You need to invite others to pray. Call for the elders of the church and have them pray over you them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. Uh, We've had to give up so much because of COVID um, in recent months. One of the things I've missed most is our Wednesday night, part of our Wednesday night service, which we've done for years, where we pray for healing. We still pray for healing on Wednesday nights when we gather in the sanctuary for our Vesper service. But what I really miss, that's always been part of our Vesper service, is the anointing with oil for those who desire it, who want to experience the healing power of the Holy Spirit. All of the Bible symbolizes anointing, and we're the anointed ones, little Christ. He is the supreme anointed one, Christ, but all symbolizes anointing, all symbolizes the healing power of the Holy Spirit. That's why you hear James commanding the church, if if any of among you are sick, you should call the elders to pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord and the Spirit of the Lord. And then he offers almost a summary statement, verse 15. The prayer of faith will save the sick. Now notice it's not the prayer or the faithfulness of the one who is sick. But it's the faithful prayer of who it is that's praying for the sick. The prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise them up. Your prayers could raise up even a pagan out there that has no faith in Jesus Christ. The prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise them up, and anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. We all know that holistically we are body and spirit. If our spirit is broken, if our spirit is in need of healing, we will have physical effects in our lives. We need to trying to get both in balance disease is when, when something is out of balance in your life disease we need to get our spirit in balance and that will have ramifications for our bodies so he says pray for the sick and then think about confession. If you're one of the sick seeking healing, we need to get things right with God. We need to get things right with our neighbor. As a matter of fact, usually, usually in the New Testament, when they reference righteousness, they're not referencing a degree of purity or great ethical living. When the New Testament speaks of righteousness, it usually almost always means being in a right relationship with God and with each other especially being in a right relationship through Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that we're better than anyone else. We just have accepted uh, the relationship that's ours in Jesus Christ, and we just, just desire to live in a right relationship with our neighbors in as much, I'm quoting Paul, in as much as it is dependent upon us. So we need to get both our spirit and our bodies right. They're connected. And then another summary statement from James, the prayer of the righteous is powerful powerful. And effective. The prayer of that person who is rightly relationship related, related to God, and that person is rightly related to others, their prayers are powerful and effective. And then I'm so glad he gives the illustration that he gives, beginning in verse 17. Elijah was a human being like us. You may want to say Elijah was a human being just like us. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Wow. There was a drought for three and a half years in Israel because Elijah prayed. And then verse 18, the final verse in this passage, Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth yielded its harvest. So let me just close by offering you two Convictions, basic convictions. Really about life in general, but specifically about prayer. First thing I want to say is, I hope we all understand, that prayer is part of God's sovereign design for the universe. Just like the law of gravity. Uh, There are physical laws, there are spiritual laws. So, prayer is something God created. Prayer is something that is part of God's sovereign design for the universe. Let me explain what I mean. Prayer is the primary way that God works in this world. That's why, by the way, John Wesley, and I hope you understand, he's quite a big deal to us at this church. John Wesley was a great, great revival preacher of the 18th century who found the Methodist movement and created a tremendous revival in his age. John Wesley said, God does nothing, I'll admit, I usually won't say almost nothing, but John Wesley says God does nothing except in answer to believing prayer. Cogitate on that for a while. Walter Wing, who is now deceased was recently, was a great New Testament scholar. Walter Wing famously wrote, history belongs to the intercessors. God has created such a universe that God has deemed one of the laws of the world to be that God works primarily through the prayers of his people. He works otherwise. When you go and feed the hungry, that's God working through you. But I, I, I hear what Mr. Wesley's saying. God does nothing except in answer to prayer. This is the standard. This is the normative way that God works in the world. If we only knew what all the prayers of God's people has done in the history of this world, we would be so grateful for those who have prayed. So we need to understand this is the way God has designed it. You know, it's not God doing it or us praying. It's all of the above. God loves to work through us in so many ways. You know, He could do it through angels, but God loves to work through us He loves to feed the hungry through us when we take food to them. God so graces us. God so esteems us. He's allowed us to participate in his work through prayer. If we really believed this, I think we would pray more. If we really believe this, we would know this is the greatest thing we can do for the world around us. This is the greatest thing we can do for our families. This is the greatest thing we can do for our children. We would do almost anything for our children, except sometimes we fail to pray. This is how God has created creation, to work through the prayers of God's people. My second conviction about prayer, and you see it also right here in this text from James, is that our faith is not in prayer but our faith is in god sometimes i see i used to always say sometimes i see tv preachers getting this wrong i guess i'm a tv preacher these days but most tv preachers get it wrong they seem to put more faith in our prayer than they put in god the reason we pray is because of the faith we have in god Now we are called to live rightly related to God, rightly related to each other. We are called to pray in earnest. That's James is saying that. But we don't put our faith in our prayer because we're so fallible, so weak. We put our faith in God, who has deemed that he will work through our prayers. We put our faith in God. God is such a good, good God. That's why I believe that God always, always answers prayer. Either yes, no, or wait. Sometimes it's all about God's timing in our lives. Because God is such a good, good God, I believe that God God gives us exactly what we ask for or something better. Now, sometimes when God gives us the something better, it stretches our imagination. It stretches our trust. It was famously said by Billy Graham if God has always given him exactly what he asked for, he would have married the wrong woman several times. So I'm glad that God doesn't always give me exactly what I ask for, but I believe God will give me what I ask for or something better because of who we know God to be what we know about the character of God, and and lastly, um, God is such a good, good, great God. I believe that God always heals, always. Whether in this world or in the world to come, but God always heals. We're on a journey of healing, and then when we step through the veil, make our transition to the other side, because of our faith in Christ, we will be completely healed at that point. It's not the nature of God to not heal. Now, he may say not yet. He may tell you to continue on the journey for a while. But some way or another, he's going to heal you. He's going to heal those you love. Um, he, will, he will heal in answer to our prayer and give us exactly what we asked for or something better. You know, language is important to me. Precision in language is important to me. Um, Going back to the Facebook post I read this morning, sloppy theology um, irritates me. That's why we are so particular in the historic tradition of the church and in the funeral liturgy in the Methodist church, because we've been around a while, we're a historic church, we're so particular that we never say "God, God took our loved one in reference to death. We never say God took our loved one. Uh, Notice next time uh, you're in a funeral service, particularly in a Methodist church, particularly in the use of our historic standard liturgy, because, and I'm very grateful, by the way, for our liturgy. You know, I I like when we get it right. Now, I know that God, I see, I've read the Bible, and I see at least one example in the Bible where God spoke through a dumb ass, but I prefer it when we get it right and we say the right thing. And we usually say in funeral liturgy, because it's part of our tradition, if you look at our prayers, look at our scriptures, we are very clear God doesn't take our loved ones from us. But what God does is what our liturgy declares. When our human bodies can no longer sustain our immortal spirits, God receives us. For me, that's very different from saying, God sent you cancer and then took you. When, and there's a prayer that says that, when God, when, when our immortal spirits can no longer be sustained by our frail, imperfect, diseased bodies, God will graciously receive us to the other side and healing will come there if it doesn't occur on this side of, of the veil. But again, because of who we know God is, we can say God always answers prayer, yes, no, or wait. God gives us exactly what we ask for or something better, and God always heals either in this world or the world to come. He'll heal us here and now, or when our bodies give out and we are received into the eternal kingdom, He will heal us then. But language is important. It makes God look horrible when we talk about God taking our loved ones God allowed us, God allows us to pass to the other side when our bodies can no longer sustain us. So prayer is such a great gift. I think if we really understood prayer, we would pray more. Those vows that we take when we join the church to support the church with our prayer, our presence, our gifts, our service, and our witness are not burdensome tasks. They're joyful gifts, we don't do those things, support the church through our prayer, presence, gifts, service, and witness. We don't do those things because we have to. We do those things because we get to. God has given us so many gifts. Would you pray with me? God, I'm aware that there are people in this sanctuary today who have a relationship to this congregation, but they don't have a relationship with you. It's great to be part of a wonderful fellowship that's busy changing the world every day of every week, but it's even more important that we have that existential, real, vital, living relationship with you through Jesus Christ. We want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection so that we can live a life of sacrifice in this world and grow in our relationship to the living Christ. So God, we thank you for the day. We thank you for the ways you give us grace so that we can live courageous, distinctive, different lives for the sake of Jesus Christ. Amen. I invite you to stand and face the cross as we climax our service with pastor ken leading us in the apostles creed